I hope you'll turn in your Bible to Psalm 46, the psalm that we just read responsibly. In these Bibles in the pews, that's page 471. 471. Sometimes before we sing a hymn, we'll either tell about the context in which it was written or maybe in the bulletin we'll add it just in print. Uh, that's always important to know. Like one of the songs we sing, The Church is One Foundation, that's sung really throughout all denominations. That was written by a young minister in Windsor, England named Samuel Stone. And he ministered to the poor on the outskirts of Windsor, England. And at age 27, he found himself in the Church of England with a conservative view of the Bible opposing the liberal drift of his day. And so he took the Apostles' Creed that we use quite often, and he wrote hymns for various parts of the creed. And one of those hymns is the Church's One Foundation, which he wrote stating that the Church is the body of Christ on earth. So it's important. I think it helps to understand when we know the context in which hymns were written. The same is true of the Psalms. All 150 Psalms, most of those were songs that were sung in corporate worship. And while we try and study them, I as a pastor try to begin by giving you a little bit about the historical setting of, of the Psalms that we've looked at over the past few weeks, whether it was Psalm 73, written by the court composer, the musician uh, in King David's court named Asaph, and how he looked and saw the wicked prosper and the godly not prosper, that's what's behind Psalm 73, whether it's the psalm we looked at last week, Psalm 13, that best we know was written during a 12-year period when David was a fugitive. He had been anointed to become the king, and yet he would not become the king for many years, and King Saul was jealous of him after David had killed Goliath, and he was jealous of the attention being given to David. So he tries, he, he tries to hunt him down. So for 12 years, David and this band of men that are with him, they, they hide, basically, and have to flee from King Saul. And it's during that time he wrote Psalm 13. The psalm before us today, Psalm 46, is a mixture of statements and kind of poetical metaphors about God's ruling over the earth. Many people refer to this as Martin Luther's psalm, and that's because he wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, basically because of verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But really what we find that this is written to help us with is in verse 2, Therefore we will not fear. It's addressed to us and our fears. Fears is a big deal for many of us. In the Bible, the commandment repeated most often, I am told, is the command of fear not. Someone took the time to count the number of times it's there. 366 times we are told fear not. I guess one way you could look at it is God wants to remind us of that every day of the year. Apparently, also, there are other phrases that are close in their meaning, such as do not be afraid or take courage, that are in addition to those 366 commands. So fear doesn't always look like fear. That's one of the problems with it. We know what outright terror is when we can say, man, I am just terrified of this. But yet often fear shows up in more subtle ways, anxiety or worry, 
or stress or dread or tension. And it brings a whole host of physiological changes like headaches and stomach problems. And it can erode our sense of well-being that where we just lose our joy, it robs us of sleep, it steals our joy. And at the root of it, if someone were to say, what, what's, what's eating you? You'd say, you know, really, I think there's a sense of dread and fear, and I can't explain it. Well, if you've ever felt this way, you've come to the right psalm. God is our refuge. Most scholars of the Old Testament think that this psalm was written as a result of something that's recorded in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. It's a very interesting story. I'll paraphrase what happened. But they think that out of this story arose this psalm. The Assyrians were, um, were tough. They were the warriors that just could obliterate other countries in their day. And the king of Judah, God's people at that time, was named Hezekiah. And the king of the Assyrians at the same time was named Sennacherib. And we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 that Sennacherib, after he had conquered so many other countries, he goes to the city, takes his armies to the city of Jerusalem. And he, through his messengers, sends word out to the occupants of Jerusalem, just lay down your arms, surrender, and you'll be treated well. You'll be given property. You'll be given food and wine. Why die today? You cannot stand before our armies. And do not say we will cry out to our God. Sennacherib went on and said, Nation after nation has said that, and we have defeated them all. Your God cannot help you. He sends this in a letter to King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah takes the letter, and he goes into the temple, the place where they worship God, And he lays the letter out, and he bows down before God, and he lays the letter out like, Lord, help us. What do we do? What should we do in this situation? And God sends word through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, God says that he will do not surrender. He will destroy the armies of Sennacherib, and Sennacherib himself will soon die. Well, sure enough... That very night, it tells us, and I'll read it to you from Second Kings. That night, as they were in the city of Jerusalem, the wall city, and the Assyrians and all the huge army outside the gates ready to attack, God sends an angel. And in that one night, that angel kills 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrians. In fact, to quote 2 Kings 19, 35, and 36, it says, When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And if you read a little further in 2 Kings, you find that Sennacherib's sons were so upset that they killed, they murdered their own father, the king, as a result of that. So we believe that Psalm 46 is written with that in mind, of how God had delivered those people who were in his city, the city of Jerusalem. It says, God is our refuge. We think of a refuge as a place of safety. 
James Boyce, writing on this psalm, asked, What do you look for to give you refuge and safety? Some people think they will be secure if they have enough money. So they lay it up in bank accounts and other assets. Like the rich man in Jesus' parable, they say, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And in the parable, Jesus called that man a fool, since in the end, death comes to all of us. And he or she must stand before God and face judgment. So money cannot protect us, regardless of how much we have, from judgment. It cannot shield us from heartbreak or failure or sin or disease or disaster. Other people think, according to James Boyce, that they'll find refuge in their own specialized training, their skills, their talents. Look what I can do. Look how talented, look how many degrees I have after my name. But he says even the best educated and the most talented people still suffer the harms of life. Others may say, well, I find my refuge in my friends or my family. I look to them for security, and yet they can be swept away in an instant. He's not only, verse 1 says, our refuge, he's our strength, a source of inner strength by which we face calamities. I had a person right after the first service uh, tell me, said, you know, when our, when our son was killed, I remember, this is the psalm that, that I went to, and I memorized this psalm, and God gave me strength. As a pastor here for so many years, I've watched some of you, some of our members who have gone on to be with the Lord, I've watched people go through situations that just were as dreadful as imaginable, all sorts of things. And I have looked at people before and said, how are you enduring this? And more often than not, people will say, God has given me a strength that I just don't have within myself. It's not like me to be able to do what I'm doing. And so the refuge is where we find protection. The strength is where God allows us to be shored up. It's kind of a combination there of two. And notice it says in the next verse, or at the end of that verse, he is not only a help in trouble, he's a very present help in trouble. What kind of uh, help? Very present. When you need help, when you're in trouble, you need help then. If the resources to help you are a day away, or a month away, or miles away, they really do no good. You need them right then. I was watching an interview with a head of part of the Coast Guard that's, that's helping up in the Carolinas right now with all the flooding. And you may have seen this interview, I think it was yesterday afternoon, that, that uh, the interviewer asked this person in charge, um, how many rescues have you done? And this was early. This was just for Saturday morning. He said, well, we've done 50, at least 50 so far. And she said, how do you determine whether to use a helicopter or a boat? I thought that was a pretty good question. He said, well, one thing is a helicopter keeps perspective and is always moving so that they can see people that have need help. They then can determine whether they will rescue the person with a helicopter or call in a boat to go there. Well, that's how, that's it. that is present help in trouble. What good would it do to tell a person who is, is in a flood, maybe clinging to the last few bits of their roof on a house before the water comes up, don't worry, we've got help. It'll be here in four days. And often we feel that way, we can feel that way about God. Lord, I need help now. Well, he is a very present help in trouble. 
there have been few women writers and speakers who have had an impact on people like me and many of you and on the kingdom of God worldwide as did Elizabeth Elliot. Although she died in 2015, she was gifted, not only was she extremely bright, very smart, very articulate, and just such a committed godly woman, she had remarkable insight and keen wisdom. Uh, Elizabeth Ellie, and a lot of that came from the pain she had gone through. Uh, she was married, she died when she was had her, with her third husband. Her, her, her first husband, uh, of course, was a missionary uh, there, killed by the Aka Indians in 1956 in Ecuador. While they were trying to reach these people with the gospel, they were speared to death, and she, they had a, a, a little girl at that time, and so that was when she was young, in her 20s. Later, she married Addison Leach. Uh, Addison Leach, they were, after years of marriage, he died a very slow, painful death from cancer. And in describing these experiences, she referred to this psalm and how the effect of in experiencing the death of these two husbands, she said, everything that has seemed dependable has given way, you know, in the opening verses. Mountains are falling. Earth is reeling. In such a time, it is, a, it is a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not, God is not shaken. So even though there is poetic language here about the mountains moved into the heart of the sea and the waters roaring and foaming, we get the idea when we go through difficult, real difficult times, we may feel that the earth is it's like the earth is moved. It's like the mountains are moved. That's how we feel. There's no stability. And so God never promises. He never promises to keep us away from trouble. You know, I had only arrived here for a few months when our family moved here before there was a, uh, a family I was told of. They were not part of this church. They could have been part of this church. Um, and they had suffered some kind of tragedy. A child had died or something like that. I do not remember the specifics. And they had been very involved in a church up until that point. And then they abandoned the faith, I was told. I didn't know that firsthand, but that's what I was told. They basically, kind of like if God does that, I, I can't worship a God like that. Well, when we think that way, we have bought into what we call today the, some of the prosperity gospel. If you don't know that term, it's, it's pretty much a catch-all term, but it's, it's the gospel, it's the message that's preached that says God wants you healthy and wealthy. And they leave off wise. But he wants you healthy and wealthy. And if you're sick, it's not God's will. Look at your life, confess what sin is there, and it's, it's your fault if you're sick. You, you don't have enough faith. And if, if you've got financial reversals, uh, repent. Because God's will, you know, cast out the demon, rebuke the demon of poverty or whatever. God wants you healthy and wealthy. And part of the damage that does, not only because it's false, but it's, it's just so misleading. There, there's nothing in the scripture to back that up. You look at the example of Paul. Look at the example of Christ. Look at this passage. And so God never promises to keep you and me away from trouble. 
and pain. In fact, when it says here he's a very present help in trouble, the literal meaning is between to be cramped is to be between a rock and a hard place is the way we put it. And so Christians do experience illness and natural disasters and lose homes and lose businesses and lose jobs and suffer and die of awful diseases and experience the pain and devastation of divorce. And they suffer injuries and they are abused in all sorts of ways. And they die in warfare and they become victims of crime. And God does not promise to spare us from these experiences. What he does promise is to be with us in those experiences. The rest of the psalm develops this idea. I'm not going to go verse by verse. But he talks about the city, and he describes the city, how God is a refuge over the city. And there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And so God... God rules over his city, the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem had an unusual feature about it. And that is, if you, if you think about warfare and, and when cities were, were seized, when there was a siege against like a city of Vicksburg or, or Savannah or things like that in the past, and food supplies would be cut off and water would be cut off and people would be starved. They said, look, we don't have to fire cannons or anything. We can just wait because eventually they're going to run out of food or they're going to run out of money, I mean, out of water. And so in Jerusalem, it would appear to their enemy, like Sennacherib, that there's no water. Just give it time, they'll die of thirst, or they'll want to come out because they'll need water. Well, there was an aqueduct that had been built that went under the walls, under the city. It's 13 feet tall. And so there was water supplied inside the city all the time. So there were, you would not see the streams flowing in from outside. It was underground. And so when David, not David, but the psalmist, when the psalmist here says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, it's a poetic expression, but it's based on a reality. What gave Jerusalem her safety? The fact that God was within her. In the book of Mark, chapter 4, we have this event of the disciples in the boat. Jesus sends them ahead of him. It says in chapter 4, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And so leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And so they're out on the Sea of Galilee, which is a large lake, six miles wide, nine miles long, big lake. And they're out on this, and then it says, Jesus was in the storm. And he was sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, because this large squall, this furious squall came up, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, here's the irony. Why were they not to be afraid? There was the storm. There were the waves. Perhaps there were the thunderclaps and everything that went with it. But God was in the boat. God was in the boat. And God is telling you in Psalm 46, believer, God is with you. God was in the city. He was in the city of Jerusalem when Sennacherib and his 185,000 plus soldiers 
outside were ready to come in and to kill everyone. Verses 8 through 11, which I won't reread, but they describe the vision of things to come, the end of time as we know it. History is moving toward a culmination, and wars will cease, and weapons of war will be broken to pieces and burned. If this psalm were to be rewritten today rather than the bow and the spear and the chariots, perhaps it would be tanks and jets and submarines or whatever else. But all that will be over with. There will be a culmination in history. And that's where things are moving. And then in verse 11, verse 10 and 11, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So how do we experience this help from God? How do we enter this refuge when we feel fearful? Well, we need a relationship with God through Jesus Christ to come to believe and to have our trust that he is the Redeemer who was promised throughout the Old Testament. We're to cast our anxiety upon him. First, we're given this invitation several times, but the one I like the most is in 1 Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Many, many years ago, I preached on a Sunday night, and I preached on that passage. And in preparation for that sermon, I did a lot of study of the text. And I found that, that invitation to cast all your anxiety on him, means the same as a well-known verse in Psalm 37. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. Hopefully you've heard that verse. Commit your way to the Lord means the same thing, literally, as casting all your anxiety upon him. And here's the literal meaning, to roll a burden onto. So imagine if you got this 80-pound pack on your back and it's weighing you down and a person comes up beside you and says, here, I'm not carrying everything. Give me your pack. And you roll that over onto the back of the other person and that person begins to carry it. And now you're freed up. That's what God means when he says, roll your burden onto me, cast your anxiety upon me, commit your way to the Lord. It means to roll your burden onto. I preach that on a Sunday night. I go home that night. During the night, I have this dream. <laughs> don't worry, folks. Don't. I'm okay. I'm not losing it. I wake up the next morning. My father was very sick. He was in a hospital in Alabama. And I woke up and I told Barbara, I said, I had the most vivid dream. I mean, it's one of those you wake up and you thought, this really happened. And I dreamed that my sister called me on the telephone and said, Daddy had just died. So I had already planned to go over to Alabama to see him that afternoon and be there that night. So I drive and I have a flat tire in Bremen, Georgia. Being too cheap to call, pay for AAA, I change the tire. And I'm in the parking lot by myself dreading going to that hospital because I knew things were bad. And it was a hard time. And so I'm changing this tire, and the whole time I'm changing the tire, I'm thinking about casting all your anxiety upon me, commit your way to the Lord. Lord, what does it mean? I feel that I have this burden. How do I roll this burden onto you? How do I apply what you've invited us to do? How do we do this? I'm trying to apply the very sermon I preached the night before to my own heart. I get to Alabama, I spend that afternoon with my father in the hospital room. It was March. 
What happens in March? March Madness, college basketball, NCAA tournament. So we're talking basketball. We were talking about some of the games that have been on and so forth, and he seemed to be doing well. I go to Wendy's and eat a sandwich. I come back, and within about 45 minutes, he's gone. I'm standing there at the bed. Now, we had a pastor here at one time that, uh, that we thought the world of, John Grawley. John was a counselor at a counseling center we had. He was the director of that. He had been a professor in seminary. John Grawley was a wise man, great preacher, and a mentor to me. I, I cherished the times I could eat lunch with John and just talk. And John had told me that one, we were talking one day about the difference between true guilt and false guilt. When you feel guilty for something, that's not really something you did wrong, but you feel guilty about it. And he told me this. He said, Chip, for example, he said, I feel guilty that I was not with my mother when she died. He said, my, my relatives, my siblings and I were doing around the clock at the hospital with my mom. We knew she was near the end. We were trying to stay here with, with her at the whole time. And he said, I was there, and I walked out of the room for just a couple of minutes. When I came back, the nurse told me, said, well, she looked up, saw no one there, and laid back down and died. And John said, I live with the guilt of that. I live with the guilt of that to this day. Now, on another note, I think enough of us know that I think sometimes people in that condition want to die alone. And I, I've been with families at the hospital that have waited for hours and then said, let's go get something to eat. And while they go get something to eat, the person dies. I, somehow or another, and I'm just speculating here, I think some people want to die alone. They don't want their relatives to see them die. Other times they want a family member there. Anyway, I'm way off the subject. Back to Gadsden, Alabama. I'm with my father. He's going into distress. He's dying. The nurse, they're checking the monitors outside. They come running in the room. And my mother obviously is very distraught but I thought I'm not leaving because of what John Grawley had told me so I said I'm going to stand right here at the end of this bed because I want his last if he opens his eyes I want him to see somebody standing here that was what I was thinking anyway thankfully our pastor the pastor that had led my dad to Christ came up to the hospital I'd called him and asked him if he could come up and so he was comforting my mom and I was just standing there we stayed for a while, and then my mother said, and this is her Christian insight, after about an hour being there, and we got his clothes and his glasses, she said, come on, Chip, let's go. He's not here anyway. That was her Christian faith. She knew he's gone. My mom was a very committed Christian. So we get back to her house, and um, a lot of arrangements has to be made. The obituary, a friend comes over to help her work on some stuff and to make arrangements. And so there's a mixture of grief amidst pressure to get things done. By midnight, things have settled down. I go to a bedroom that's in the far end of the, it's a one-story house. And my bedroom going up in high school, at least, had been a carport that had been converted to a bedroom. So it's apart from the rest of the house. I'm there by myself, and I'm up all night long because this burden now has gone from weighing about 80 pounds to about 500 pounds. Now, I knew my, my dad was a believer. My dad was with the Lord. But the whole thing was so vivid, the past 24 hours, and the thing about, oh, from the hospital room, I called my sister and told her my, our dad had died. It was me making the phone call, not her making the phone call. 
But I was thinking of this passage, roll your burden, Lord, enable me, help me. How can I cast this burden onto you? How can I commit my way to the Lord? How do I roll this over? That's what he wants you to do. And one way we do it is where he says right here, be still and know that I am God. Verse 10. That's not a, just settle down, just, you know, this real quiet, naturey. Be still and know that I'm God. It's the idea that you're struggling, that you're trying to make it happen, that I'll make it. We'll protect ourselves. We'll protect the city. Hezekiah, come on, men. We're going to take on the Assyrians. We're going to do it. We've got a plan. We're trusting ourselves. And God says, be still. Stop. I am God. I am the one who's in control here. Boom, 185,000 dead that night. And then twice... In verse 7 and verse 11, he uses the same phrase. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What does that mean? I'm going to close with this. First, he's the Lord of hosts. We know Lord of hosts. Are you all still with me? All right. We've got about five minutes. Lord of hosts. The host means the host of the men, people, but also the angelic hosts. The, the Lord of all the angels. Probably one of the most vivid pictures we have of that is in the Old Testament with Elisha. The prophet Elijah had a protege, Elisha. And so Elisha is a prophet. And he and his servant, a young man, doesn't tell us how old, but a teenager apparently, they are in a town called Dothan. And they are being sought by the Syrians not to be killed but to be captured. They want to capture Elisha. And Elisha doesn't want to be captured. So they're in this house and the Syrians have surrounded it. And the servant, the servant, the young servant goes outside and he sees that what's happening and he comes back in. Oh no, oh no, they're here. We're surrounded. We're surrounded. And Elisha prays and says, Lord, open his eyes. And we find there, he opens his eyes in 2 Kings six fifteen, says, Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servants to see the heavenly host protecting him. And he sees them all, and the servants saw that the hills were filled with horses and chariots and fire around Elisha. So I've never seen this depicted in a movie. It'd be a great scene to put in one. But God enables this young servant, he's not even named, to see the host of God, the armies of God that were there all the time, but they were not seen until that moment. Now, I'm not the type of person that looks for angelic presence all the time, but I've heard more stories through the years than I can count that I don't doubt at all. You can tell if it's something sounds contrived, but other times you wonder, was that God sending one of his hosts to protect that person? I, I knew a man named Bill Smith. Bill used to rate, race Porsches, and he became a believer, and he was involved in a church in, in Alabama, and he was driving one day to Chattanooga, and he was in his car, and he hydroplaned. And his car flew off the highway. What he didn't know, it was also on a cliff, and he went off a, about a 30 or 40-foot embankment. All he knew was what he saw out the steering wheel, and he said, Lord, help me. And all he saw was leaves and branches, and then the car just came 
it was still. And he got out of the car and he looked, and he looked back up and there was a road he'd come off of, and he was standing in a field and a man was coming trotting down from the highway saying, man, Mr. the Good Lord was with you. His car had flown off the highway, hit the top of a tree, and the tree bent down and let the car down onto the ground, and then the tree went back up. Harry Reeder, who preached at our missions conference, pastor of Briarwood in Birmingham, I remember him being here in this pulpit, and he told us about how uh, some time ago when their youngest daughter, who's much older now, was in college, one night she was at home with them and she went to a local store to pick up something and it was, it was late at night and when she came out of the store it wasn't busy at all. There were two or three guys standing there and they began to walk behind her real close on the way to the car and they were saying threatening things and she was very nervous as anyone would be. And they followed her right up to the car. She gets to the car and a young man who's got on a shirt with the uh, logo for the store uh, says, do you need any help? And he looks at these guys, and the guys just take off. It's like they almost trot away. They don't say anything. And she said, no, I'm okay. Thank you very much. And she got in her car and drove home. And she mentioned it to her parents, kind of what an odd thing it was. And, and Harry said, he and Cindy said, you know, people that run businesses, all they ever hear are complaints. Let's call down there. I want to thank them. He called, and he said, can I speak to the manager? And the guy kind of laughed and said, manager? Yeah, I, I'm the manager. Uh, said, I... You have a young man that's working there at night, and my daughter was threatened, and, and uh, he helped her, and I just want to thank you. You've got a good employee. And the guy said, friend, there's, no, there's nobody down here like that. Only people in the store only employs me and another woman, and we don't have anybody that works here like that. Angel? Uh, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. Uh, maybe? Maybe not. But he's the God of hosts, but also the Lord of hosts. And I want you to remember about that. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. That's what Elisha told the servant. You need to know. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And then the last thing is that he uses the term the God of Jacob. Briefly, you go to the Old Testament, there's Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. And then he had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Those are four names, Abraham, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. Now, of those four men, none were perfect, but the worst of the four, without question, was Jacob. One-third of the book of Genesis is devoted to the biography of Jacob. He cheated his brother out of his birthright. He's a liar. He's deceptive. He's conniving. He's a schemer. And basically, that part of Genesis, the third of Genesis, is a whole lifetime before Jacob learns to trust God. It takes him that long. Now, every family probably has a relative that we'd rather not know about. That when they get to telling you about who's in their past, it's kind of like, well, we don't mention Uncle Billy or, you know, aunt, whatever. And uh, imagine if you were a father and you had a father and mother and you had three sons. And the first son is a war hero. gets a Congressional Medal of Honor. Household name. The second son goes into business. Very profitable business, honest person, very involved in the community, helps people that are in need and, and is very involved and engaged and, and just what well, you'd say this is a real salt of the earth kind of person. But the third son is a liar and a cheat and deceptive and has what he has because he's cheated people out of it. Now, if you were to meet someone and say, Hi, I'm Bill or I'm Mary, we're the parents of. 
you'd probably mention hero son and business son and you might find a way not to you may know our two older sons you know you might find a way not to mention the younger one what does god do the god of abraham that's not what he says the god of isaac nope the god of jake the god of esau nope he says he's the god of jacob there are probably some people that don't really want to be identified with you for one reason or another, or me. You may be ashamed of yourself, things you've done that you wish you could turn the hand of time back. What does God do? He is saying, I am not afraid or bothered to be identified with this scoundrel, Jacob. And I'm not afraid or bothered or ashamed to be identified with you. So God says, find refuge in me. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. Through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of Jacob. Is God your refuge and fortress? If you, have you put your faith in Christ as your rock and your redeemer? You can do so today. It says in the scriptures, today, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need a refuge more often than not. We seek other things that can't withstand life. We pray that we would find our refuge in you. We pray for those that have already done so. We look to them and we, we see the testimony of this psalmist represented in their lives. We pray you'd help us to to, um, to seek our refuge in you rather than things that are temporary. In Jesus' name, amen.